Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We're waiting for share price to enjoy the better banking, which leads us to an esteemed analyst. It leads us to Charles Peabody, who nailed the banks through 2018. One of the very few who had a bearish point of view going into the year, and one of the very few that turned out to be right as well. He joins us from Portales Partners. He's the chairman there. Charles, great to catch up with you. Let's talk about the numbers in front of us over the last couple of days before we get to your broader framework for thinking about this sector. The numbers this morning actually look pretty good relative to expectations for both Goldman Sachs and for Bank of America. To start with BFA first, it's interesting that it's the retail side of the business that is picking up the slack here. And the guidance coming from the company is that this economy is still good. We don't see the recession around the corner that was feared maybe a month ago in this market. Your thoughts on what you see this morning, Charles? Yeah, I, I would say that there was nothing not to like at B of A. I mean, it was it was pretty good all the way through. But as you pointed out, the spread lending businesses was where the particular strength was. Um, and there was some weakness in the fee um, businesses. Um, so, yeah, the, the revenues, this was one of the first banks to actually beat on revenues uh, this quarter. So it was a pretty solid quarter for B of A all the way through. Charles, also quite interesting that provisions for credit losses actually decreased at Bank of America. The story at JP Morgan yesterday was the opposite. What do you think is the theme, the dominant theme for 2019 that we need to start to think about a little bit more? Well, I think the difference is that JP Morgan has been a little more aggressive in the capital markets arena. And I think they got a little over their skis in the fourth quarter and got caught by the bad volatility with some hung loans and some leveraged loan problems. And then in their commercial bank, um, they do have some um, credits in the commercial real estate uh, area, so middle market banking. And that's what you are going to see as the, the stresses progress. You're seeing one-off problems at the community banks. My guess is over the next week, you'll see some more problems at the regional banks. The big banks kind of lag in terms of showing the credit problems. Well, the big banks lag. And I guess, Charles, and you've been, as John mentioned, so prescient on this. How have you changed your view of their five-year or three-year strategy? I mean, what's the new Peabody? This is where banks are heading. Well, I guess it depends on where you think you are in the cycle. I I do believe we started a bear market back in uh, 2018 and that the peak prices we saw in the first quarter of 18 won't be seen again until after the recession is done. And that the big banks are facing an earnings recession. But but I think their balance sheets are going to come through very much intact. They're not going to have the capital impairments that they've had in the past. And so for the next cycle, I think these things are going to be great long-term investments. Okay, they're going to be great long-term investments, but are they going to merge to do that? Are they going to do it through legit cash return, or is it financial engineering, or dare I say monopoly, edges of monopoly? Well, if I'm right about you know coming through with their balance sheets intact, they're going to be able to invest in their businesses day one when the next recovery starts. So I'm really looking at these as very good strategic plays on the next cycle. I, I think they've got some tough sledding ahead of them, you know, between now and 2020. So I think they're going to be lower lows um, in this bear market. Um, in fact, I mean, today's sort of is the cherry on, on the, you know, icing um, in the sense that you're getting pretty good news out of both Goldman and B of A. 
and the stocks probably will run on that. But I, I've sort of thought that this relief rally that we're in right now would uh, run out of steam sometime by the end of next week. And, and I think we you know, have some issues with the Fed when they meet on the 30th of January, because I don't think they're going to change QT. And so liquidity is still going to be an issue. Charles, let's talk about spread lending, just basic vanilla banking. Do you see them being able to offset what we're probably going to see in net interest margins, which is potentially a contraction? Do you see them being able to offset that with better volume, better loan growth? Well, you know, B of A was one of the names, uh, you know, I've sort of had a barbell strategy in terms of my long recommendations. B of A is the, you know, quality name. And Goldman Sachs was the other name I had recommended with, you know, a little bit of hair. Um, I expect that the yield curve will actually steepen by the long end selling off. And that's actually a very big positive for B of A. They have much more sensitivity than the other big banks to the long end. What about for the others then, Charles? What's your base case for them? Uh, I'm not as, as uh, hyped up on, on the, the spread lending businesses um, in general, um, mm-hmm. particularly at the regional bank level. Um, so, uh, yeah. you know, even, you know, J.P. Morgan pointed out that going into the first quarter, their NII, their net interest income, would be flat sequentially. Right. So I think you're losing some of the mojo in that game uh, going forward. Uh, partly because uh, I think the deposit betas are going to start to accelerate higher now. Okay. I love it when you go to Greek letters, Charles. It's a great joy to hear about deposit betas. The only Greek letter I know. What's the gamma on headcount in big banking? You've been really good about the expense control leading the way to better use of cash, et cetera, et cetera. One year out, three years out, five years out. Does Charles Peabody think about a thousand here, eight hundred there, et cetera, or are we going to see substantial reduction in headcount due to technology and due to competition? Yeah, I, I don't expect across the board layoffs. I do think certain businesses, obvious ones like mortgage banking, are going to continue to see restructuring or downsizing. Uh, I think you're going to see that in the wealth management businesses. Um, I just don't think the underlying fee structure supports um, the buildup that they've had there. Um, and you might get it, you know, as you do cyclically in some of the capital markets um, businesses as well. But I don't see, I think it's going to be more business by business and then time by time type of, of layoffs. Which firm's under the most pressure right now, Charles? Well, um, you know, Wells Fargo is still struggling to um, improve its efficiency ratio. Yeah. But, you know, in the fourth quarter, they were supposed to have a efficiency mm-hmm. ratio with a five handle, and they came in at 63%. Um, Citigroup is the other one that's struggling to keep their costs down. Um, so those are the two. And it's largely because they've got revenue problems. I mean, those two banks showed declines yeah. in revenues year over year, whereas B of A and J.P. Morgan actually no. showed growth in revenues. Some of the nuances. Charles Peabody, thank you so much for telling us. John, for me, this is the interview of the day, not only on Brexit, but the future of capitalism as well. One of the giants of economic history, Robert Skidelsky. He is definitive on Keynes and, of course, his treatment of the financial crisis as well. Lord Skidelsky, thank you so much for joining John Farrell and myself. I want to pick right up, Lord Skidelsky, with you fired up on Westminster Green this morning. So, John Farrell, what I want to do with Lord Skidelsky to start is look back 
Lord Skidelsky, you went after David Cameron and you went after the elites of Eaton. What did they get wrong so many years ago? Well, I think David Cameron got two things wrong. First of all, uh, um, in, in calling a referendum uh, without um, any, any, any real prior negotiation with the um, EU about the, the, the terms on which um, the argument could be made. And then having, having um, uh, got the result of the referendum, um, he, he, he then quit. Um, I mean, he, he, he basically landed, landed us in this mess without adequate preparation. And it was purely because um, of the in, internal divisions in the Conservative Party. He wasn't really thinking through right. anything <clears throat> beyond politics. Are the internal divisions? And, and, and so, in that sense, yeah. I think he, he, you know, he'll be, he'll go down as as, as one right. of the great failures as a prime minister. You talk about the internal divisions of a majority party. The Conservatives, the Tories, folks are like you know, akin to the Republican movement uh, within the United States of America over a hundred, hundred and fifty years. Lord Skidelsky, those internal divisions are they normal? The way the way Britain is now with divisions in the majority party is that business as usual. Well, it's you see, it's not just the majority party. I mean, it's, it's it runs right through the country. I, 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 remember, the, Britain's relationship with the EU has always been rather cool one. I mean, yes. we joined late, and therefore it's not surprising actually that we're likely to leave early, and 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 we've never. I mean. Even the Remainers, the people who want to stay, have never been that enthusiastic about yeah. Europe as a cause. It's, a, it's a, regarded as a business proposition. It's the only way to get into that dynamic market. That was the motive for joining. And and if you look at the you know the polls, the Eurobarometer, we've always been at the bottom as far as support for the EU concerned. So it's not surprising that if you then throw it to the people, so to speak, right. that you're going to always, you know, get, get the result well, you did. You know, Megan Desai, also with us this morning, Lord Desai talks about a liberal order. You have been the definitive biographer of the 20th century's liberal order in the United Kingdom, and you folks, you can bring this right over to America as well. What's our exit yeah. strategy from our paralysis? Let's start with the United Kingdom right now. Yeah. Well, I think I think one thing is you've got to in my in my in my view what you've got to do is to respect the uh results of the referendum and try and work your way around it so that you know least damage and most good results uh from it. I mean, it doesn't seem to me you can safely go back on on on, okay. on a result like that. You um, have and written, say, look, let's, let's pretend it never happened. Yeah, you have written definitively about how England and Great Britain and with the United States build up for World War II. I mean, this country's faced shocks before, and yet I see massive remain hand-wringing that the world's going to end if we get a no-deal Brexit. Do you have the same—I just don't believe you do. You don't have the same hand-wringing angst, do you? No. 
no, no. I, I think that's fear. That's fear mongering. I think you know, in 1940, there was there was an existential crisis. I mean, there really was, and um, um, uh, Britain's world would have ended had um, Hitler been allowed to get his way. That is not the case today. And I think comparisons uh, of that kind are wrong. Mind you, I think there's a good case for saying, look, there are things happening in the world at the moment, which we thought we'd put behind us. In other words, the uh, resurgence of of nationalism and and even of anti-Semitism. You see, so there's a great phrase which goes, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And so, you know, you never finally transcend anything that you thought you'd left behind. What and is I think ru- that's true in the United States, too. Well, that's right where I wanted to go. You're reading, you're reading my yeah. mind, Lord Skidelsky. If you're just joining us, folks, Robert Lord Skidelsky of Warwick, and, of course, definitive on John Maynard Keynes and so much of the treatment of the 20th century uh, history. Your thoughts, please, on President Trump and all that you witness in Washington. Does Lord Skidelsky consider Trump to be a one-off? Oh God, that's a difficult question. You know, I think I, I'm I, I I think what what President Trump has done is to raise issues um, which needed to be raised. For example, issues to do with globalization, but yeah. in a in a way rather like a bull in a china shop. I mean, it's a very different way from from the way Keynes raised similar issues in the 1930s and say, well, let's see whether we can um, find a, a, a way through in a liberal system. And so right. that's why, you know, in the end, yeah. he worked towards Bretton Woods and those kind of institutions yeah. that would make globalism safe. Whereas okay. President Trump, it seems to me, right. just barges in uh, on some of the right yeah. questions and, and for some of the right reasons, which is that, you know, there are lots of people who have been yeah. very damaged by, by, you know, but he doesn't do it in a... I think in a way that um, makes, right. makes a good solution more okay. likely. Robert Skidowski, one more question. This is an email from John from Coventry emailing in today. And John asks Lord Skidelsky about the future of British banking. I mean, in a global economy competing against the big U.S. banks, do you see a place for the city and for London banking? Yeah, there is there is obviously a place for the city, and 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 the city of London is is the world's foremost banking institution. But I think there, I think you know, I I I accept the view that financialization in general has gone too far, and that the financial services sector has an undue influence on what happens in the rest of the economy. And so I wouldn't I wouldn't you know weep, uh, uh, shed tears if 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 as Churchill once said finance was less proud and industry more content those were churchill's remarks you know that's and i I think that's got a lot of relevance for our own times robert skidelsky thank you so much lord skidelsky uh, with the house of lords of course and being with us today on television and here on uh, bloomberg radio One of the really important things to understand is that within all the talent at Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, there are odd codicils, amendments to agreements. And one of the great joys of working with Paul Sweeney in New York is the forced agreement 
by senior management at Bloomberg that because Paul went to Duke University, we need to interview from time to time on a timely basis, like every other day, people from Chapel Hill. So we will do that right now. Paul Sweeney and Tom Keenan with us. Chuck Robbins of Cisco, math major, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Chuck Robbins, I want to talk about one line in your wonderful annual report. Our relationships with our customers are changing from transactional to life cycle. That, to me, is the Cisco challenge over decades. John Chambers had to deal with that, and now you're dealing with it in this whole new cloud and technology world. How are you getting to life cycle relationships? Hey, Tom, first of all, I just want you to know that if you hadn't been on here, I would have left when I found out Paul That's was Suzuki. That's right. We, no, we knew that. I'm in London, and I'm sorry. <laughs> thank, I apologize. Thank God. We look forward to seeing you in London next time. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. You know, so the whole notion of life cycle is really connected to uh, the business model transition that we've been driving for the last three and a half years. As we've increased the content of our uh, technology portfolio, leaning more towards software, Yeah. then you just have to do that, right? You have to make sure your customers are getting the value out of it. Uh, and so we built an entire organization. We're building it right now, led by a lady named Maria Martinez, who actually joined us from Salesforce. She was the president of customer success there. And she's building this methodology for us right now. We're extending it to both our, our software assets as well as our hardware assets to really make sure our customers, you know, as she says, go from choosing it to using it to loving it. And, uh, yeah. and I think if you do that, then you obviously uh, you improve renewal rates, but you really improve customer satisfaction, which creates just great partnerships. Yeah. In the cycle of Cisco, there's been the up and down. I love how you say the idea of using it is what you've got to get to and the emotion of it uh, in a positive sense. Is it impossible to do that now with the advent of the cloud and so many new competitors coming in, even in hardware or in software? Well, the irony is, is that the actual migration to cloud is is what's driving our growth, which people can't quite get their heads around. But uh, our yeah, customers, start with me. Well, well, what they're <laughs> what they're now dealing with is they're dealing with consuming application services from SaaS providers like Workday, Salesforce. They're consuming cloud services from Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and then they still have applications running in their private data centers. They have customers everywhere. They, I mean, the employees everywhere. They've got IoT exploding. And so the, the, all of their traffic flows are completely different than what they've been for the last decade. And so they're having to re-architect their entire IT infrastructure to accommodate this new cloud world, which ironically means we're rebuilding networks. And so that's, uh, this whole transition to the cloud has been a huge contributor to our growth over the last you know, four quarters. So Chuck, as you... I think when people historically think of Cisco, they think of networking gear and hardware. And of yeah. course, you've been uh, you know very much out front in, in kind of changing your business model to more services, recurring revenue. Where are you in that transition? A lot of it's been done through M&A. Should we expect more M&A as you continue to evolve your business model? Yeah, so last quarter we said 52% of our software uh, business is now coming from subscriptions. And um, ironically, we have added to our portfolio through our M&A capability, but we've actually built the largest software subscription business we'll have three years from now is on core networking, believe it or not. And in 2017, we launched an Ethernet switch and, uh, and we actually launched it with a subscription on it for the first time. And people were 
were concerned as to whether we could do that and whether our customers would embrace it or not, not only did they embrace it, but that product became the fastest ramping product in the history of the company. So the, the value that we're adding. So if you think about our subscription business now, we have subscriptions on wireless access points. We have subscriptions on routers. We have subscriptions on switches. So we're, we're, we're in the midst of the transition. We still have a long way to go, but I'd say we're pretty deep into it as well. And Cisco's historically been strong from a product perspective on this IT security side of the business. Mm -hmm. And we've had so much noise or news over the last couple of years, particularly about IT security. What's happening on your side of the business as you try to address your customers' concerns? Well, if you think about that world that I just described, where they got traffic flowing everywhere. That's right. Yeah. You, you, you don't have a perimeter to defend anymore. So the, the security has to be built into the underlying right. infrastructure. And so that, that actually plays to us and to our strength. So we're, we blocked seven trillion threats last year on behalf of our customers. And that's happening at the network layer, at the email, at the endpoint, at the cloud. Yeah. And being able to aggregate threats across all of those, all of those areas and then dynamically update your defense uh, based on what you're seeing is the only way to do it, and that's what we've been building out. So we're our, our security business is incredibly yeah. healthy right now. Worldwide, Chuck Robbins with us on Cisco uh, this morning, where he uh, has, has really uh, smoothly done a change in leadership, given all the changes in technology as well. Chuck, I want to go to your chief strategy officer, Anush Kapoor, double E out of Wharton, uh, <laughs> all of the idea of what you need to do with strategy forward. When you sit down with a guy like Anush Kapoor, on strategy, how do you fold the Amazons of the world, these incredibly supple entrepreneurial companies in? Are they your friend or they are your foe? What do you do with the world of Bezos? Well, first of all, you just have to understand Anuj is so incredibly smart that he, he can only talk to me for about 10 minutes without getting bored. <laughs> then, but, uh, then he goes to the Duke people and it's 12 <laughs> minutes. Oh, 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 that hurts. Uh, you know, listen, they're, they're actually friends. They're both customers, and they also realize that the world is not going to be 100% public cloud and that the edge of our customers' networks, the branches, the, the, the IoT explosion that they see happening at the edge is, is critically important for them to have connectivity to and for them to be able to, if applications are going to run at Amazon or Microsoft or wherever exactly. they're going to run, there, the, a lot of the data that actually is being collected that adds value to those applications is happening at the edge of the network, it's happening yeah. in mining plants, it's ha and that requires networks. So we're, we have uh, built partnerships with, with Google, with IBM, with Microsoft, with Amazon, so no, they're definitely friends. So Chuck, let me ask you to put your macro IT hat on a little bit. You guys talk to everybody globally. And as we think about some of these trade wars that kind of flare up from now and again, and obviously with China right now, are you seeing growing trade tensions impact global IT demand? And I don't know if it's a global look or a regional look. No, if you think about what's, I'll answer your question specifically at the end of this, but the reality is, is if you, you look at where technology is, uh, and particularly Cisco's technology, our customers, whether they're governments or companies around the world, they don't view technology as an operational enabler anymore. They view technology as defining their strategy of what's possible. And so what we see is, you know, this technology is effectively the digital nervous system for the economy today. 
So, and we see technology that's helping drive growth for our customers. We see technology that's helping drive cost out and productivity for our customers. So I, I think that in upturns and downturns, the impact on technology may be less today than it was a decade ago. Now, the, the, the trade wars and those kinds of things, I think that it's creating uncertainty. Uh, I think right now there still remains a level of optimism that we're going to get to something. And so I think that uh, most customers are operating. Everybody's making the decisions they need to make in light of the impact on their their businesses. But in general, I think people are companies are optimistic that we're going to get to a good place. Chuck Robbins, thank you so much. He is with uh, Cisco, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer, Cisco Systems. we try to do at Bloomberg Surveillance is to have on people of interesting and diverse conversation. We've got the usual Brexit crew, the usual Washington crew, people on foreign exchange, Chuck Robbins of Cisco on with us earlier. And now in London, it is a great pleasure to have someone with a completely twisted labor view in the United Kingdom, Helena Kennedy, Baroness Kennedy of the Shaws, with a, a great academic career, particularly at Mansfield College in Oxford, and also a lively labor view in the House of Lords. Helena Kennedy, it is wonderful to speak to you today. Can Jeremy Corbyn can can Jeremy Corbyn oppose the Conservative Party, or does Labor have to find a new leader? Well, the, the truth is that there is a real division in the Labour Party, just yeah. as there is a, a real division in the Conservative Party. And it's because a very large number of people inside the Labour Party um, would like to see a second vote on, on the, uh, um, or the whole issue of leaving Europe. And, and they want that, and they, they really are pressing for it, and particularly the young. This is the great contradiction, is that Jeremy Corbyn is, is the leader of the Labour Party because the young... Um, really came out and joined the Labour yeah. Party in order to make him their leader. But they also want to remain in Europe. So there's a great deal of disappointment around at the moment. And then there are also those people who were, would perhaps be described as the, the Blairite group, the, the people who were um, very much in the camp of, of uh, Tony Blair when he was leader. Yeah. They too are great pro-Europeans. So there's, there's a very large number of people who are very much in the Labour camp who say um, they, want, they want a second vote. They want the, the general public to be able to say, now that they know as much right. as they know, would they, would they, would they uh, still want to leave Europe? And, uh, and that, there's a risk in that, let me tell you. But that is, and, and it's quite clear that, um, that, that Jeremy Corbyn has, has you know, prevaricated on this. He has um, played both sides. Um, and he's wanted to, on the one hand, keep um, the, the, the sort of wider voting public who um, mm. may be normally his, his, you know, the Labour's electorate. Right. Um, many of them are very disillusioned and they voted to leave Europe. And so he doesn't want to lose them. But at the same time, he wants to keep the party well, on side. So he's been kind of, you know, um, <clears throat> moving between these two positions. And he's been very unclear. And so people feel very disappointed in the way that he's handled all of this. Do but you, I don't do see you any ex- change taking place. Well, that was my next question is, do you expect change after the historic moment last night? And, and, and Baroness, we go back to 1989-90. 
1924, and MacDonald, the advent of the Labor Party. Frankie, you can go back to Gladstone and a liberality there in 19th century conservative England. The left has to give a response to what we're observing within the majority conservative party, whether America or Britain. The problem, the problem for, for, for Jeremy Corbyn is that he's trying to ride two horses. The, 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 the many of the people, and I, by no means all, but many of the people who voted to leave were people who were, are hurting because of austerity policies, because they are really finding that um, they're having difficulty making ends meet, that their, you know, their pay hasn't changed for 16 years, um, and yet everything else is becoming more expensive. Their children can't get housing. You know, the young, young people have a great problem problems being able to afford housing. Um, we've, we've got serious social problems, uh, very little investment in schools and so on. And so, on. And so I mean, with the, the number of homeless on London streets at the moment would really shock people. Um, so there's a question about that. And so he's trying to, on the one hand, speak to, to, to those and to talk about the policies he would bring. And yet at the same time, um, it, most well, people are having to <clears throat> deal with the, the Brexit issue. So what I think he's going to have this vote today, which is to try to say that um, there's, you know, there's no confidence in the government. He's not going to succeed. There will not be a general election. Though many people do feel that in in most circumstances, if somebody's had the devastating vote against them, as as Theresa May had, that she would normally be resigning herself. But she's not going to do that. She's a very determined character. Um, And she's mindful of her own legacy. She doesn't want to really go down as being the person who completely... Uh, failed to deliver on on the on the Brexit vote. So I I mean the, the the real fear for many of us is that this is drifting towards a no deal situation where we leave Europe with no tra- trading deal with uh, with our nearest neighbours and we're out into the cold winds of uh, of, of yeah. the, you know global trading. And while that might seem yeah. exciting to some people, there's going right. to be a great cost um, it to, okay. to ordinary ordinary folk for quite a time to come. One one final question. Uh, Baroness, and this of course goes to the accent that we're hearing worldwide. I believe that to be of a Scottish uh, variation. Whether the SNP and the independence of Scotland, I don't mean separation of Scotland, I just mean the independent voice of Scotland. Where will that be given this paralysis? It's so interesting because even conservatives in Scotland, and of course there's been an increase in the number of members of parliament who are, who are conservative in Scotland, quite unusually for quite for the last few decades, there were sometimes were no um, conservatives representing Scotland. But uh, currently there are 12. And, and even there, in Scotland, the strong sense is they want to remain part of Europe. And, um, and so it's very much, the vote yeah. is very high for, for remaining. And so it's going to cause a lot of controversy. So there are issues around are we putting the union at risk? Um, we're looking at what's happening in Northern Ireland. A big part of the of the failure to get her deal through for, for, for Theresa May was that she couldn't satisfy the different interests around um, um, what would happen in Northern Ireland. Because if yeah. you reintroduced a border there between the North and the South, the, the, there's a real risk that the peace process would suddenly start um, uh, freeing at the edges. Yeah. And so being, bringing back the troubles is something that people fear. So, so she's had a lot on her plate in trying to deliver this thing and and of course the DUP who keep her in power that's the the the, the party the union right, party right, um, yeah. um, in Northern Ireland they 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 mm. they have got her by the you know um by by the tail because they are saying 
you know, you know, we 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 insist on remaining part of the the United Kingdom, and we don't like yeah. the border well, arrangements that you're putting in place. Baroness, we're out of time. Much longer conversation in order the next time. Uh, Helena Kennedy, Baroness of the Shaws, thank you so much. And this historic day for her Scotland, and for her uh, United uh, Kingdom. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.